0: Can we pray one more time? Bow your head and pray. Father, as we come to your word, your word is truth. And we pray that you would sanctify us in the truth this morning. Father, I pray you would help me in the proclamation of your word to be faithful, to be clear. Father, I pray for all of us that you would help us to receive your word with eagerness. It is your word, Father. I pray this in Jesus name. Amen. It's good to be back with you this morning. Uh, it's nice to kind of have a regular habit of coming back here and filling the pulpit. So it's good to be with you. If I haven't met you yet, my name is Bill. Uh, I serve as an elder over at Delray Baptist Church. So it's just good to be able to come in and fill pulpit every once in a while. If you have your Bibles, would you turn to Mark chapter fourteen? Mark 14, and we're going to be in verses 32 to 42. As you're turning there, one thing that all of us in this room, I can say confidently have in common, is we know what it's like to be a child. Because you are in this room, I know that you at one point were a child, or currently are a child. And one thing all children have in common is that there are things that they need help with. Because whether they are limited in strength, limited in ability, there is a need to look outside of themselves for help and ask for help. Infants, before they can speak uh, intelligible words, they cry when they're hungry because they have a need and they have to ask for help because they can't feed themselves. I have two children, six and eight years old. There is not a day that goes by in my house where you do not hear, mommy, I need help, fill in the blank. Daddy, I need you to help me with fill-in-the-blank. They might not be able to reach something because they're not tall enough. They need help getting it. For a long time, my son couldn't tie his shoes every morning. Can you help me tie my shoes? Because they know their neediness, it drives them to ask. You realize that doesn't stop when we become adults. There are things in our lives all the time where we just can't do ourselves. We need help. Something breaks in the house that you don't have the skills to fix. What do you do? You call a contractor because you need help. You have something really heavy that you can't lift on your own. What do you do? You call a friend. Can you help me lift this? Recognizing our neediness is directly connected with our asking for help. That's just not true in our, our natural lives. That's also true of us spiritually. We have an infinite amount of things that we are not able to do in the flesh. We must recognize that. And when when we do know that we are needy people spiritually, that should drive us to do one thing: pray. This morning, as <clears throat> I was thinking of a text to, to preach on this morning, I thought of a million different examples in scriptures of people that are a wonderful example of praying. Praying people all throughout the Old Testament and New Testament. We can see wonderful examples of men and women of prayer throughout church history. But there is one that is unrivaled in their prayer life. And that's the Lord Jesus himself. So would you look with me in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14, beginning in verse 32. And the text reads this. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hand of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. The main point of our sermon today is going to be this. <clears throat> your prayer life is inseparably tied to recognizing your neediness. Your prayer life, my prayer life, our prayer lives are inseparably tied to seeing our neediness. And Just by way of kind of a roadmap of where we're going to be going this morning, first we're going to see in verses 32 through 34 that we must recognize our neediness the first step, recognizing that we're needy people. Secondly, we're going to see that we must respond to our neediness, respond to our neediness in verse 35 to 41. And then lastly, we're going to see that how we respond bears fruits. There's going to be results to our response in verse 41 and 42. By way of context, though, it's really important. We're kind of parachuting into the middle of a book, the middle of a chapter. What's been going on? Jesus, in the beginning of chapter 14, institutes the Lord's Supper. It's Passover. He knows it's the day before his death, and he has this last supper with his disciples where he breaks bread, and he passes around wine, and he says, in just a few hours, this will be my body. It will be torn. It will be broken for you. My blood, like this wine, will be spilled out on your behalf. He tells him, do this in remembrance of me. It's also in this chapter that he he looks to one of his disciples and says, you're going to betray me. And Judas leaves and he is on his way to betray Jesus. But right before the text we come to, he addresses the remaining disciples. And he says to them, this very night, one of you will deny me. And Peter, being Peter, in a sense, points the finger at the rest of the ten who are there and says, they may deny you, but I will die for you. And Jesus tells him, before the rooster crows twice this night, you will deny me three times, Peter. They go across the Kidron Valley, and they come in verse 32 to a place called Gethsemane. Now, one other thing by way of context that's very important that we we state in the, the beginning here is who Jesus is. Jesus, according to Scripture, is God, the second person. Eternal, has no beginning, will have no end. He is the one who has created all things that we see, fully God. Yet Jesus comes to earth, takes on flesh, steps into the very world he has made, taking on a human nature fully God, and fully man. And in his humanity, Jesus has needs. He hungers, he needs food. He thirsts, he needs water. There's times Jesus grows weary, he needs rest and sleep, as being fully man. And in this text, we're going to see something else. Jesus has need for prayer. Verse 32 through 34, we're gonna see that our first point. Recognize your neediness. Now, one other thing we're kind of gonna do in each point is we're gonna look, here's Jesus, here's his disciples, and then we'll apply it to ourselves. There's there's two groups of people in this text: there's Jesus, and then there's his disciples. And they're doing two drastically different things. Verse 32 through 34. We're going to see that both Jesus and his disciples have need. Verse 32, they went to a place called Gethsemane. This word simply means an oil press. As we kind of piece together the other gospels, we find that this is a garden, uh, uh, an orchard where there are olives that grow. John's gospel tells us this was a place that Jesus frequented. In chapter 18 it says, as was his custom, he went to the mount, or he went to to Gethsemane. He brings with his disciples, tells them to sit here and pray. Verse 33, he leaves his disciples way out, there's a gate, there's a wall around this according to John's gospel, he probably leaves them outside of the walled garden and he brings in with him his three, his inner circle, James. John and Peter. We'll come back to them in a second, but look at what happens with Jesus in verse 33. Jesus knows that in just a few hours, the greatest trial anyone in the history of the world will ever face is about to fall to him. He knows in his humanity there will be things that he has need of the Father for help. Look at the language. It's almost like John, or er, John, sorry, if I say John throughout this, it's because I've been reading through John, so I'm thinking John, I mean Mark. You just have to translate with me. I mean Mark. When, when Mark is writing here in verse 33 and 34, it's almost like he comes to the end of human language to express the anguish our Savior's in. Look at the language. The first thing, he began to be greatly distressed. Now this word is used throughout the Gospels. And it it literally means to be amazed, or almost like our minds don't even have categories for something that we see. This word's used whenever Jesus performs miracles. It's used when Jesus raises someone from the dead, and the the crowds around him are amazed or shocked or we don't even know what to think about this. It's used when he when heals blind people. And the response of the people is to be wow, we're speechless. The same word can be used of being so horrified at the sight of something that you don't even have language for what you see. And that's the word used here. He he is horrified. He's greatly horrified, amazed. The next word, troubled. This word has the idea of anguish. It's almost like he is surrounded by anguish on every side and it's pressing upon him. Verse 34, it continues. My soul is very sorrowful. It's grieved. Even to death. Now if you have the Christian Standard Bible or the NIV, it will say to the point of death. This inner anguish, this horrified state at what he sees, and what he knows is about to fall on him, the text says, almost brings him to the point of death itself. Jesus, in his humanity, now we know he's fully God, he has no needs as God, but as a man, he knows that the hour of his death is at hand. And he knows his need. He goes to the garden to do what? To pray. To pray. There's another group of people here, though. There's Peter and James and John. These three have need as well. In John 15, Jesus, before he goes and has his high priestly prayer, he says to all of his disciples, apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. You're needy people. You must bear fruit, but you don't have the ability to bear fruit on your own. You need me. You need to abide in the vine. We know specifically specifically these three men. They have need. Do you realize these are the three people in Mark's gospel who said they would die for Jesus? In Mark 10, James and John, when they're debating who's the greatest and Jesus rebukes them, they say, we will die for you. In just the previous paragraph, Peter has said, I will die for you. And in just the previous paragraph, Peter has been told, you will deny me. They have need. They have spiritual need. They know temptation is right at the door. Their Savior has told them, I am going to die. I will leave you. He tells them, you'll be tempted to deny me. One of them is just left to betray him. These are people who must recognize their need. Everyone in this text has need. Everyone in this text has need. What about you? What about me? Do we recognize our need? Our spiritual need? Are we needy people? Are we people who see that we, just like them, can do nothing apart from him? Do, are we people who see that apart from Christ, we have no power to fight sin? That, that he's told us to, to be holy, and in our flesh, on our own strength, we will always fall, 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 fall. Do we see that the task he's given us to make disciples, to evangelize the lost, Is something that in our flesh we have no ability to do, but we need His strength? Are we people who see that we are in need of the Lord? Do we recognize it? If you're somebody who say, I don't know that I recognize it, I just want to give you one exercise to do kind of on your own. Just start going through the commands. And see how you do in all those commands. Honor your father and your mother. How are we doing? I think we all fail at that. We have to speak the truth at all times, not lie. We all fall at that. Ephesians 5, let not a hint of sexual immorality be named among you. How are we doing? We've been commanded to preach the gospel. How do we do? Pray without ceasing. I think if we look at these commands and look at our lives, we can see we are people who need the Lord. We cannot do what he commands. We need him. Recognize your need. Our second point, which is where we'll spend most of our time this morning, is that we must respond to our neediness. We must respond to our neediness. Again, we're going to look first at Jesus and then at the disciples. Jesus, knowing the hour is at hand, knowing that he is about to die, is driven to pray. He's driven to pray. And we're going to look at four things about Jesus' prayer here. The first thing we're going to see is that he desperately petitions the Father. Verse 35. And going a little farther, Luke's gospel says, a stone's throw away. So, these three disciples who have gone into this, this garden with him, they can still hear him, maybe even still see him. I mean, the, the writer of Hebrew tells us he could be heard with loud cries and tears. So, they're, they're going in with him. Jesus now goes by, him, by himself, and it says he fell on the ground. And now, don't read too quickly past that, don't skip that. Matthew's gospel says he falls on his face. This is odd in a Jewish culture because in a Jewish culture, you pray standing. The posture of prayer is one of standing and and speaking to the Lord, praising the Lord. To fall to the ground is a sign of desperation, a sign of urgency. Our Savior knows in just a few hours he will die and he falls to the ground. This is not some rote, memorized, repeated, empty words he's going to be throwing up to the Father. Here there is urgent, desperate pleading and crying. He prays desperately. And look at his petition. Here's what he says in verse 35. Falls to the ground, and he prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And then he prays in verse 36 remove the cup. Jesus is not asking to not be the Redeemer. What he's doing in his humanity is knowing what will fall to him. He says, if there's any other way, let it be. Jesus, in his humanity, is wrestling with the Father, pleading desperately with the Father. Now here's where we have to go back to all that anguish, and why the anguish? I mean, there are people throughout church history who have gone singing to their death. Why such anguish in the Savior? And I think the answer is found in the word cup. What's in the cup? In the Old Testament, the book of Psalms, the book of Jeremiah, and the book of Isaiah, the reference to the cup has this idea of a cup filled with divine wrath. You don't have to turn there, but just listen to Isaiah 51, verse 22. Thus says your Lord, the Lord your God, who pleads the cause of his people. Behold, I have taken from your hand the cup of staggering, the bowl of my wrath. You shall drink no more. This is good news for Israel who has been exiled and has been experiencing judgment from God. God's giving a word of hope saying this cup of wrath, this bowl of wrath, you'll drink it no more. Jeremiah threatens, the Lord through him threatens a a cup of wrath. The book of Psalms talks about a cup of wrath here The son knows in just a few hours, he's not just going to physically die. In just a few hours, he knows that this this holy being, he himself being holy for all eternity, never knowing sin, is about to have all the sins of his people laid upon him. His holiness shrinks back, naturally pulls back from the thought of sin being laid on him. The son who has eternally been in a a relationship with the father, the one, the father says, in whom his soul delights. The son who has eternally been in the bosom of the father, who has been in this close, intimate relationship with the father, knows in just a few hours, his father will turn his back upon him. Because he sees our sins and he'll cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In just a few hours, this cup of wrath, this cup of divine wrath will fall to the Son. He'll be the one taking the wrath. He'll be the one drinking the cup. And in His humanity, He must wrestle with the Father knowing this is coming. I just want to take an aside for one second, a little rabbit trail, and I want to I don't know many of you in this room. I don't know your state between the Lord and you. There are so many people in our culture today that say, yeah, this idea of wrath, I'm going to live how I want. It's not that big a deal. I'll deal with the consequences later. This is God in the flesh. And look at his reaction to the thought of falling into the hands of a living God, experiencing divine wrath in our place. This is his response. Nahum chapter 1 verse 6 says, Who can stand against his indignation? This is a sobering thought here. That our Savior looks and knows what is coming. And this is his response. That should alarm us. If if you are outside of Christ, if you know yourself to have never repented of your sin and trusted in Christ alone for your salvation, this is what will come. But the good news is Jesus will go to the cross, will take the cup, will drink the wrath, so that anyone who comes to him by faith and by faith alone, he will wash their sins away. He will make their sins, that though they're scarlet white as snow. He will, he will take any who come unto him and never cast them out. He will take people who deserve divine wrath, remove that wrath and make them sons or daughters of his. Oh, we must come. We must come in repentance and faith because he took the wrath in our place. We have such hope. The first thing we see here is he desperately petitions. The second thing we see in this text is that Jesus affirms the Father's ability. Notice what he says in verse 36. All things are possible for you. Here, Jesus knowing the Father Tells the Father, I believe you lack no power to do anything. If you want to remove the cup, you have the power to remove the cup. If you want to do this, it's within your power. I am coming to you knowing that you are a God who is able to do anything. Notice, a recognition of need, but he recognizes one who supplies all needs. He goes to the Father. He recognizes, he affirms. One of the things that's helped my prayer life more than anything has been John Owen's book, Mortification of Sin. His point in that book is not talk about prayer necessarily, but he has one line in there where he talks about how we should, should, and praying to the Father should confess our lack compared to his lacking nothingness. That's not the wording he uses, that's my wording, But here's what he does. He says, we should go to the Father and say, my wisdom is foolishness. I make decisions on my own and it turns out terrible. You, Father, are wise. You keep the universe running all the time in your wisdom. I am weak. I could speak into the air and say, I hope a car comes here. Let there be a car. And no car would be be appearing. My words have no power. You speak... And the universe comes into existence. You speak and uphold the universe by the word of your power. You are powerful. So I'm coming to you, Lord. I lack wisdom. You don't. I need your wisdom. Lord, I'm coming to you. I lack power. You don't. I need your power. Here, Jesus not only desperately cries to the Father, but Jesus affirms the the Father's ability. He asks. He affirms. And here, he also submits. Again, Jesus is fully God, fully man. His human will has to be brought into subjection to the Father's will. And here, here's what we find. Keep in mind what's in the cup. Keep in mind what he knows is coming. And here's his cry. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Here we find prayer is not so much bending God's will to ours, but bending ours to his. It's not, Father, here's what I want, do what I want. It's, Father, here's what I want. And if it's not what you want, change my wanting. Here Jesus, knowing the hour is at hand, knowing divine wrath is coming, knowing that he will be separated from the Father, says, Father, in this humanity, that is horrifying. But if it's what you will, enable me. If it's what you will, let me do what you will. Help me, help me, help me. And lastly, his prayer is persistent. Jesus, we find in verse 37, has been doing this crying to the Father, this desperate wrestling with the Father in verse 37 for an hour. He comes to Peter and finds him sleeping, and he says, could you not watch an hour? He's wrestled with God for an hour in this. But notice in verse 38, it's not been enough. He goes back a second time. In well, verse 39, he went away again and he prayed the same words. Verse 41, he came a third time. It's not like the son is wrestling with the father and says, not your will but mine. He says, okay, good. And he's done. There is a continual need. I'm not, I need to go back And he prays a second time. Father, I know what's coming. And and it's so horrifying to think about. I need you. I need you. Help me. Lord, I want to do what you will. I want to do your work. I want to do your work. Help me. Help me. Help me. Third time. And he goes back. And he goes back. It's persistent. It's regular. This is Jesus. He knows. He has need in his humanity, the trial's coming. It drives him to respond in prayer. But remember, there's a second group of people in this text Peter, James, and John who know they have need and notice their response. Verse 37. And he came and found them sleeping. Verse 40. And again, he came and found them sleeping. Verse 41. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping? They respond. Because they don't see their neediness, they respond by not asking. Now, now notice what's happening. This is Jesus. I just want to draw your attention back to a previous scene. Where the disciples are are out in a boat, and the winds come and are howling, and the disciples, many of whom are fishers, are afraid they're going to die. And what's Jesus doing? He's sleeping. He's completely at ease. This time where all of these rugged fishermen are out there, and they think they're going to die, Jesus is sleeping. He has no anguish. No concern. But now in the garden, the one who is sleeping is in anguish. That should signal something to the disciples. He was sleeping there, and now look at the state he's in. But where he's in anguish, and and he's expressing his, his need to the Father, they're the ones now sleeping. Where he is now in this state of of where he's horrified at the the, the sight of divine wrath coming in his humanity, they are snoozing. One sees his need, they don't. And it drives them to prayerlessness. As we apply this, I want to make this very clear. I have no intention for this to be a sermon where you feel guilty about not praying. Because here's what's going to happen. Guilt works really well for like a day or two. If I make you feel really, really bad for not praying enough, you might go home and you might pray for an hour. And you might pray tomorrow for an hour, but that ain't going to happen for more than a week. It'll wear off. My desire is to say this. You and I are needy, needy, needy people. And rather than make you feel guilty about not praying enough, I want to encourage you to see, first, that you have need, and secondly, that there is a God who will supply all of your needs, that you can go to at any moment, that you can go to often and ask for help, ask for wisdom, knowing that he has promised to give it. I want you to see, I want to see in my own life, that guilt and shame are going to work But we do have need to go, go, go. And he stands with an open hand and an open door saying, come, come, come. I know you have need. I know you fall. I know you lack. I don't, and I will help. Come, come. You realize in the Old Testament the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies one time a year? We can go whenever we want. So let's go to the throne of grace. That's what I want us to do is see That we do respond, though. The question in this text is not, do you respond? The question is, how do you respond to your neediness? Do you see it? Does it drive you to look outside of yourself for help? Or are we blind to our neediness and it drives us to other things? Self-empowerment, going to the world. We are needy people. We have decisions in life to make. We lack wisdom, we need to go to him who has wisdom. We have temptations, we have besetting sins that we fall and falter in regularly. We need help to fight our sin. He's given us as individuals and as local churches a task to go into the world and to preach the gospel. And that task on our own is impossible. We can't raise the spiritually dead. We can't open the hearts. But he can, and we need to ask him to do it. We are needy people, and we need our God. They have a need. They respond to their need. And now, lastly, I want us to see the results of how each of these groups respond. Verse 41 and 42. And he came a third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hand of sinners. Rise. Let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Jesus has now come to the end of his praying. And notice his response. Notice he doesn't say, my betrayer is at hand. Quick, let's hop over the back wall and get out of here. Notice he doesn't say, I can cause the angels to come down and blind them so we can just scram and we'll, we'll avoid this whole situation. After wrestling with the Father, these three times, he says it's enough. And he walks right over to his betrayer and willingly gives himself self into the hands of his betrayer. And he willingly gives himself to go before the, the high priest and the scribes, to be accused of blasphemy. And he willingly gives himself to be flogged and beaten, to the point Isaiah says beyond human semblance. And he willingly takes up a cross and carries it up a hill. And he willingly goes to a tree and has his hands and feet pierced with nails. He willingly goes and is hung on the cross and has a crown of thorns piercing his brow and is willingly mocked. Willingly spit upon, willingly stripped naked and shamed. But before you get to Golgotha, there's Gethsemane. Before you have a willing, dying, bleeding Redeemer, you have him praying. The fruit of his desperate wrestling and praying is our salvation, his bleeding. His dying, his rising, in his humanity, are preceded by his praying. Think about Peter. There is fruit to his lack of seeing his need, his lack of prayerfulness. The night Jesus is betrayed. Hey, you look like one of those guys who was with that guy Jesus. Jesus. I don't know what you're talking about. Next person. Hey, you, I think I've seen you before. Aren't you with that guy that's in that room that they're telling us is a blasphemer? Got the wrong guy. Third time. Hey, I've seen you before. You were with that guy that was preaching. I think his name's Jesus. Nope. Must be somebody else. Mistaken identity. Cock-a-doodle-doo. Cock-a-doodle-doo. Three times. But praise the Lord. For somebody who doesn't see their need, someone who denies Jesus, he's not just cast aside as useless and a failure. It's Peter who stands on Acts 2 and preaches the gospel. Peter who's restored. Read the book of Acts, the first couple of chapters. These men who have failed in this way to see their need, what is the early church characterized by? Acts 1, they're all together in one room and they're praying. Acts 2, Acts chapter 2, right after the preaching of the gospel, and there's all of these people converted. They're daily together, devoting themselves to the teaching of the word and prayer. Acts 4, they're persecuted, and it drives them to pray. Acts 5, they're persecuted, and it drives them to pray. If you're in this room, again, this isn't a guilt trip. If you fail to be a person who's been characterized by prayer, I'm not asking you to say, oh boo hoo I've been such a failure and walk away with your head down I'm saying hey you can pray starting now you have a father who will hear your prayers now go to the throne room as a church you you can be people characterized by prayer and knowing there's a God who hears and answers prayer his ability to do exceeds your ability to ask that's what Ephesians 3 says right He can do exceedingly, abundantly above all that we ask or think. Let us be a people, individually. Let us be characterized as families, and let us be characterized as churches by a people of prayer. As we started out our sermon, we said we all have a common thing in, in common. We all know what it's like to be children, to know our need, and to have to ask. But let us also have another thing in common, that we are people who spiritually know our need and are driven to ask. Would you Pray with me. Father, thank you for the gift of prayer. We thank you for the example of your son, who even in Mark's gospel, in the first chapter, the sixth chapter, and the 14th chapter is seen praying whose ministry from beginning to end is characterized by seeking you in prayer. Let the same be said of us, Father. Would you help us to see our need, to respond in prayer, and then praise you for any of the fruit that you give? Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us now respond in faith to what we heard from God's word. If you're able, please stand for the singing of our next hymn, Before the Throne of God Above, followed by an acapella version of the doxology.